Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's taken years for online gambling and betting to come to Connecticut, but it's taken just months for it to become a problem. And thinking of buying or selling your home? We find out what the market could be like in 2022 and whether it's still hot or not. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. In October 2021, online gambling and betting became legal in Connecticut, and both the state's casinos and the Connecticut Lottery jumped on the online bandwagon with gaming partners to bring this new and fast-paced entertainment to the masses here in the state. Since then, the TV and radio airwaves have been awash with advertising for online gaming and betting and also in printed media – promising a secure way to bet and giving away free bets to entice new users to sign up and play. But already the cracks are beginning to show, and according to the non-profit, the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling, they've already received increased calls to their gambling helpline as people are running into trouble. I caught up with Diana Good, the Executive Director of the Council, to find out more. Diana, thanks for joining us. Thank you, it's nice to be here. So recently, your organization, yourself, and also representatives from the casinos were at a legislator's public safety and security committee informational hearing with regards to sort of like online gambling, sports betting, and concerns already that it is causing people to basically become addicted, possibly, or had gambling issues. What and how did you feel that that meeting went? I really appreciated all the legislators getting everyone to together for an update, you know, on what is actually happening since October. It definitely shows that the legislators care about what is happening. I don't know if anything will come from this meeting, but I really did appreciate the opportunity to get everyone together to talk about what is actually happening. What was quite staggering from that meeting is that since a sort of mid-October when online sports gambling and betting became legal here in Connecticut, I understand that up until around about the end of December, so the end of the year, around $2.5 billion was wagered in the state. And that's according to figures from the Consumer Protection Department here in Connecticut. That's a huge amount of money in a short space of time. Huge amount of money. And I know that especially the casinos last night were talking all about how much money is coming in and how great that is for the state. I know the governor's office put out a statement a few months ago about how that number is only going to increase. You know, again, so great for the state. And I just wanted to remind people that behind every one of those dollars is a person and family. And often they can't afford to lose the amount of money that people are losing. And we really need to understand that it's more than just the money. We can't just focus on all those dollars and how great that is. We really need to focus on the people behind those dollars. And one of the issues with online gambling is how easy it is to gamble and run into trouble. One of the things that we thought was going to happen, and I was completely wrong about this, is I thought we were going to have a little bit of time. Prior to online gambling and sports betting, 
it took a while for people to hit rock bottom. Sometimes it took people years before they realized that they did have a problem gambling. They couldn't stop gambling and they'd lost everything. They drained their 401k. They took their kid's college fund, second mortgage on the house. Then they realized that they really did have a problem. What's happening with this online gambling is people are figuring that out over a weekend. We get calls on a Monday morning of people saying they hadn't gambled in 10 years, 15 years, and they're getting these pop-up ads. They're getting these marketing materials. It sounds like it's risk-free. They get on, they lose everything. So I was shocked at how fast people are really running into trouble with online gambling. The thing I want to ask you is this. Do you think COVID has played into this? Because, you know, people are not going out as much. They're at home. And now with online gambling, effectively have a casino or sports betting in their pocket with their phone or, you know, or on their desktop computer. Absolutely. There's a lot of isolation. There's a lot of loneliness. In a lot of cases, there's also other addictions, depression, alcoholism. So I think all of that is playing into the perfect storm of what we're seeing right now, which is people really running into trouble with online gambling. You said at the meeting that your organization and the hotline, which is part of the many resources that you offer, but the hotline in particular, you said you had seen it quadruple in telephone calls. Telephone calls and chats. Absolutely. Things have really taken off. What sorts of calls? And is it is it sort of coming from uh, people of all ages or are we seeing it hitting a particular gender or a particular age group? Are you able to give us a little bit of clarity on that? Yeah, the majority of calls we're now getting are from 20-something men. They are kids who are sports betting and are because it's so fast, they're running into trouble before they really can comprehend how much money they've actually lost. So it used to be when we thought about a problem gambler, we thought about the little old lady at the slot machine. Now the problem gambler is the 20-something male who's gambling at home. There obviously is a lot of advertising out there. We've all seen it. You either hear it on the radio, you see it on television. Do you think it's because it's sort of geared really towards that sort of age group as well? I think they're definitely looking at targeting that age group, but I think they're really targeting everyone. And I think the biggest problem is they're targeting new people. They're targeting people who never would have thought about betting before, you know, in saying that it's risk-free and saying, all you have to do is open an account and we'll give you a hundred dollars, nothing to lose. It's not a risk-free activity and there is a lot to lose. So I think it's not just targeting the sports betting and the younger crowd, but I think it's also making the ads sound like it's a risk-free activity and it's not. And I think that's one of the problems. And some of the stories that, that I've heard and some of the calls that I've gotten are from people who haven't gambled in a really long time. Again, Monday morning is the day that we really get a lot of calls, you know, especially after last weekend. A lot of people are sports betting over the weekend on football. So one of the calls that I got was from a gentleman who hadn't gambled since 2007. He was on the self-exclusion list at the casino brick and mortar. He didn't understand that that didn't protect him from online gambling. So he's checking his email and getting all of these pop-ups. He's going to the mailbox and he's getting all of these marketing materials. He unfortunately got sucked in and he unfortunately lost everything. So that is also one of the concerns that people think they are protecting themselves through self-exclusion, but they're not unless they go to the Department of Consumer Protection webpage and self-exclude from online. So there's online is a whole new thing. 
So if you thought you had protected yourself and excluded from the casino brick and mortar, and that's protecting you now, it's not. So that's a lot of what we're seeing are people who thought that they had protected themselves, but they're not. I remember when, you know, and of course, it was only a few months ago when all of this was launched and two of the organizations, DraftKings and FanDuel, both said that, you know, they had in their sort of software the ability to sort of like to keep track. And if people were doing something odd or or erratic with regards to the gambling, that they could effectively shut them down and cut them off to to stop this. Do you believe that the software or their promises to do this are not holding up? I really don't know the answer to that question. And I think that's one of the problems. I think these companies are saying a lot of things and I don't know if that's true or not. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting that came out yesterday, I don't know if it was from FanDuel or DraftKings with or consumer protection was there's a lifetime loss cap of $2,500. If you lose $2,500, then you're shut down. I'd love to check that, but I don't have $2,500 to risk on that. So I don't really know how anybody verifies that. What were the casinos reactions? Were you happy or not about, you know, how the casinos reacted to this? Yeah. And I just wanted to add one thing about the online and the $2,500 cap, because another call I got from someone was from the father and he was concerned about his 40 year old something son and daughter-in-law because he was a problem gambler and he had maxed out all of his credit cards online. And then he pretended to be her and gamble online. So I think he was up to six credit cards by the time they called me. So if there is a $2,500 cap times six, that's a lot of money. And I don't know how the sports betting companies are going to figure that out if it's a spouse or it's your kid that you have a new credit card in their name. So all of these things sound really great on paper, but a lot of the calls that we're getting are showing that there are loopholes in this system. How did you feel that the the casinos reacted to this? Because both of the casinos were uh, part of this meeting. I believe that Rodney Butler, chairman of Foxwoods, sort of suggested that the fact that, you know, you're getting these extra calls that, and as weird as this sounds, it's sort of, it's working that, you know, people obviously know to contact you if they have a problem. But do you accept that? No, because... I can't advertise the helpline. So we don't know how many people are out there that don't know that there's a helpline. We think between one and 3% of the population in Connecticut has a problem with gambling. That's between 100,000 and 300,000 people. That's not the number of calls that we're getting to our helpline. So my concern is all the people that don't know there's a helpline because we don't have the funding to advertise this helpline. That's really my issue. And when you look at the advertising that the operators are doing, I don't think that's very effective. I think it's shows like this that's getting the helpline out. Um, All the press that we've tried to be doing to get the helpline out. I'm not sure it's because of the ads that they're running in conjunction with the ads saying that gambling is risk-free. And you're critical of these ads, even though legally they have to add in that piece about if you have a gambling issue. What's your beef about that? You can't read that print. If you're watching television, television and you see an ad for DraftKings FanDuel and they show the helpline number at the end, they flash it so fast that you can't read that number. I'm not even sure that you can figure out what that number is for. Also on printed materials, the number is really small and again, very hard to read. Um, Certainly we have an issue with radio ads where when a radio ad is playing, it's full volume. But then when you get to the helpline, the volume somehow is cut in half. So you can't hear that helpline number. So 
Theoretically, yes, they're adhering to what the guideline is, but practically, I really question whether or not they're making the effort to make sure that the helpline can be read. So sure, they're showing the helpline number, but is that enough when you can't read that helpline number? I would say no. They'd say no. According to legal, they're doing what they need to do. And I guess that's where my frustration is. Good enough? I don't think good enough is good enough for the people that are problem gamblers who are losing everything. I don't think good enough is good enough when you're making $25 million a month. We can do better. What are some of the things that you would like to see happen? And obviously this takes money as well, because you know your organization does receive funding, but it probably could do with a lot more funding and I guess a lot more personnel. Well, yes. I don't know about a lot more personnel, but we'd love to get back to pre-COVID numbers. Before COVID, we had five people working at the council. Right now we've got three. We have plans to hire another person to help us with the helpline. I don't know if we have enough funding to help us hire a fifth person to help with outreach and training. We were so optimistic about what was going to happen with the new regulations and the new funding streams and the fact that the operators and the council and problem gambling services worked for a year on that new logo, that we worked with an advertising agency on a $300,000 marketing plan that we were going to run during March Madness and during next football season, because we thought with this additional funding, that's what we'd be able to do. We can't do that. It's it's now a completely irrelevant document. What's the governor's office said about this? Because, of course, if we go back to all of these launches, the governor was very much front and center, you know, at the launches at the casinos and obviously for online gambling. And of course, the state is doing very well. Thank you very much from the money that these casinos and the online gambling is bringing in. Is there something that the governor's office needs to be doing? I don't know. We haven't been able to talk to the governor's office about this. We'd like to, but we we haven't been invited to discuss this with the governor's office. At the end of the day, what do you want to see happening? What sort of things can be done now, not in six months time? Because like you said, this has happened almost overnight without sounding overly dramatic. What are some of the things that you would like to see happening right now? So definitely we'd like funding to be able to advertise our helpline to make sure that people know that there is help out there for not just the problem gambler, but also their families and that that help is free. We'd also like to take a harder look at the self-exclusion form because we're not sure that that's working the way it was intended either. If you want to self-exclude from online gambling through the Department of Consumer Protection, they share that list with the casinos and you're also self-excluded from the casinos. And we've gotten calls from people who understand how dangerous online gambling is. They don't want to online gamble. They don't want to get the marketing materials for online gambling and the pop-ups, but they would like to self-exclude from online gambling, but they'd still like to go to the casino a couple times a year with their friends. So they're not going to self-exclude from online gambling because they don't want to have to self-exclude from everything. We think that people should have the opportunity to pick and choose what they want to self-exclude from. We also think it's important that people on the brick and mortar casino self-exclusion lists understand that they are not self-excluded from online gambling. And the casinos have control of those lists. We've never seen those lists. We don't know how many people are on those lists. So we're really relying on them to tell people that they are not self-excluded from online. And we're having some difficulties making that happen. Well, Diana Good, Executive Director of the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling. Thank you ever so much, obviously, for talking to us and for clarifying some of those points and also for raising, obviously, the alarm on the situation that uh, the state is already seeing with regards to gambling issues. And we thank you for your time and for coming on the podcast. 
Thank you. I appreciate your time as well. And I'll keep you posted as things move forward, because again, things are moving fast. And if you think you or someone you know might have a gambling problem, then you can call the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling Helpline at 888-789-7777. That's 888-789-7777. Or visit their website at ccpg.org. The housing market goes through cycles like everything else, and when COVID hit over two years ago, the market started to heat up and then exploded. House prices jumped and availability became scarce. So as we enter 2022, what's happening now? I spoke to husband and wife realtors Anne-Marie and Paul Bellanoit recently to get a temperature check. Paul and Anne-Marie, welcome to Connecticut East this week. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Brian. So, um, Anne-Marie, perhaps I can throw the first question to you. Like we said, for the past couple of years, the market seems to have been really hot. What's it looking like so far in 2022? 2022, the market is still going to be strong. We are definitely seeing prices leveling. We're not going to see the escalation of home values that we saw in 2020 particularly. In 2021, they started leveling off a little bit. So in 2022, we're going to see those prices leveling. We're not going to see them dropping necessarily. I think the market will sustain. The reason for this is because the rush is is kind of over. So those folks leaving the cities trying to get out of COVID in 2020 started this whole rush carried over to 2021. There's fewer cash buyers now. So that's helping the costs stabilize. Higher interest rates we're seeing in 2022, we're expecting higher interest rates, which will keep some buyers out of the market, but we are expecting a little more inventory. So hopefully there'll be a balance there. We're not seeing as many buyers waiving inspections and appraisals as they did in 2021 and 2020. And appraisers are being much more realistic with their home value appraisals. So that's going to help everyone buy in a much more stable market. So I think 2022 is hopeful. I know there's a lot of advertising about raising interest rates, but really we're talking them going as high as maybe 36 which is still typically very, very low. And Paul, let me turn to you. I mean, how much more were properties going for, you know, in the last couple of years? Because it seemed like, um, you know, the sky was the limit. Yes, and that was driven by uh, the rush of people to get some out of the cities and find some homes that were bigger, uh, had more accommodations for in-home offices. The pricing went pretty wild for a while, particularly in the early to mid-2021. There are some significant pricing going, uh, bidding going up well over list price, uh, in some cases, 20, 30, 40, even $100,000 over list. And as Amory mentioned earlier, the appraisals were kind of following that market value. So people were buying houses that were probably a little bit overpriced, but you know were desperate and the inventory was extremely low. So as a result, there was little inventory and high demand. And Anne-Marie, was there any particular style or type of property that seemed to be getting more attention than others at all? That's a good question. I'm not sure the answer to that is yes. Everything was selling. I think that the increases that Paul talked about were across the board. Certainly the under $350,000 market, so the, the 200 to 350 was just absolutely on fire and actually still is. So those that price bracket is such a popular price bracket that um, folks are still struggling to have a successful offer on those properties. But overall, I think all properties sold at every level. 
And Paul, of course, it was great if you were trying to sell, but of course, likewise, if you were trying to buy, the impact was there as well. So it was a little bit of a difficult situation, I suppose, if you were thinking of actually selling and trying to buy a property. Yeah, it was kind of a double-edged sword uh, in the sense that for sellers, it was obviously a great market. Some of the sellers who were trying to either downsize or even upsize uh, were having difficulty finding homes to move into. Uh, that was a problem for them. But if you had sellers that were either downsizing or going to condos or maybe moving out of state, the challenge was for the for the buyers. Uh, there were many, many properties with multiple offers, uh, sometimes 10 and 20 offers within a day or two. So it became extremely frustrating for some of those buyers. They tried several times to get you know, get a home and unfortunately they were outbid and it created a lot of anxiety on their part. And in some cases, they just backed away. And that's why we think 2022 might be a better situation for those buyers. We're not thinking it's going to be quite as competitive, although it's early signs are that some of these lower price houses are still going fairly quickly. But we're hoping to see a little bit uh, back off a little bit so that those buyers have an opportunity to if you know one gets left a property because sadly maybe a member of the family has passed away, you know, grandma or whatever, what's the sort of situation or what's the sort of advice maybe that you as realtors can give to somebody? Because I mean, I suppose the instant reaction is, you know, they want to get rid of it because of the memories, etc. Is there any sort of advice that you can give to people who may be in that situation? Yeah, I don't think there's any specific advice other than, you know, obviously you if you're willing to sell the home with our clients, uh, try to make them understand, first of all, what is a reasonable price for the home? And then secondly, try to fix those things that are obvious areas that people would be concerned about in cases of uh, properties that have been left family members that may have passed away or moved out of state. Sometimes they need a little bit more care going in. So we just try to help them understand what the market is going to look for, buyers are going to be interested in seeing, but we would certainly encourage them to sell. Uh, certainly, it's a, it's a good way to recoup some of the funds that were uh, and the investments that were put into the house over the course of the years. So we think it's a good, good place for people to maintain the legacy of the house, but also to find a new owner that would be happy to live there as well. And Anne-Marie, what about a situation, say, where you've decided you do want to sell your property? You've got multiple offers. You'd be silly not to take those offers, but you haven't found obviously what you want. Do people sort of like do a little bit of a stopgap situation and maybe sort of like consider, hey, yeah, I'm going to sell it and go and rent somewhere for a short while? I mean, what's the sort of advice there? Because if you find yourself in that very privileged situation, you don't want to necessarily be overpaying for your next house, do you? Right. Yeah. And it's a good question. And I think 2021 certainly saw an onslaught of that. Most folks that couldn't sell their homes did rent. So the renting market in Southeastern Connecticut is was extremely strong. Rents were very high. Luxury apartments were filling up overnight. So I think that people did do a stopgap. They were a little afraid of overpaying for their next property. And they also, many people that I think wanted to sell and move on, weren't exactly sure what they were looking for for their next house. And a stopgap is exactly what a lot of people did. And I think we're still seeing that. I think that a lot of those folks are still waiting it out to see what the market's going to bring and to be in a little less competitive situation. Well, it'll be interesting to keep watching as 2022 continues. But thank you ever so much, Paul and Anne-Marie Bellanoit, Realtors uh, in Southeastern Connecticut, for your great insight and advice to anybody out there who's got a property either thinking of selling or buying. Thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for chatting with us, Brian. Thank you, Brian.
And if you're thinking about selling or buying a home and want to speak with Anne-Marie or Paul, you can reach out to them via this website, propertiesct.com, and ask to be put in touch with them. Tree damage caused by high winds, hurricanes, or stormy weather? Green Valley Tree has you covered. We offer emergency storm service for residential, commercial, and even municipalities. From full removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken and fractured limbs, no job too big or small. If you need immediate emergency service outside our regular business hours, call our emergency hotline at 860-966-5710 and visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for details of our other services. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making headlines in the region recently. The Yukon Board of Trustees unanimously voted in Dr. Radenka Marek as the university's new interim president during their January board meeting. Marek takes over from Dr. Andrew Aguinobi, the university's previous interim president, who will leave in late February to join the private healthcare company Humana. Aguinobi thanked board members and had this to say about his time at Yukon. This is definitely, I would say, the most profound time in my career in terms of just feeling that the work is worthy of our best efforts. The people are worthy of our best efforts. The state of Connecticut is worthy of our best efforts. And everyone involved with UConn and UConn Health And so it's been a privilege to be a part of it. And Marek thanked UConn's board for supporting her nomination and shared these words about outgoing interim president Aguinobi and his impact at the university. Andy is teaching our students not to fear. And what that means, recognize your call at any point of your life, do your best, feel comfortable that you have the skills and capacity to change and explore who you are. Aguinobi became interim president of the university just seven months ago and was also the CEO of Yukon Health for seven years. His departure came as a surprise to the university, according to Yukon trustee and board member of Yukon Health, Sandy Cloud. Connecticut submarine manufacturer Electric Boat gave their yearly legislative update to local and state leaders recently. The forecast from EB's president, Kevin Graney, was upbeat during the hour-long virtual presentation. Graney set out EB's future plans for submarine production, highlighting big growth for the company as they switch from building one class of submarine to another. Columbia will count for a much larger percentage of sales than we're currently counting, and it will be equivalent roughly to the Virginia program. What that means is electric boat, in terms of revenue generation, will be about double its size over the course of the next decade. Graney also highlighted EB's continued challenges in hiring new staff due to the continued COVID pandemic and the company's need to stay ahead in the technology race against rivals Russia and China. Connecticut's health insurance exchange, known as Access Health CT, has launched a first-of-its-kind program for reducing health disparities and the number of uninsured people in the state. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service reports. Broker Academy will help people who live and work in historically underserved communities become licensed health insurance brokers. Beginning June 1st, the three-month apprenticeship program includes mentorship from an experienced Connecticut broker, and the state covers the costs of training and exams. Broker Cesar Cortez, who will serve as a mentor, says it's about building trust in the healthcare system. And it starts with that individual person that we're looking to mentor from the community so they can go back to the community and provide that proper information and allows doctors and even services in Connecticut to expand because we're all on the right channel. We're all in the same program. 
Its focus on addressing health disparities comes after a February 2021 report showed Connecticut's Black and Hispanic residents face barriers to receiving medical services and have higher uninsured rates than white residents. I'm Emily Scott. And three new comfort dogs are joining the ranks of police departments across Connecticut, and all three of them are brothers. Skipper, Jules, and Hodges are three black Labradors trained by inmates in New York prisons for the Puppies Behind Bars organization for wounded veterans and first responders. Comfort Dog Hodges is now an officer at Waterford Police Station, and Community Engagement Officer Eric Fredericks, his new partner, said it's amazing how people react differently to him when he's out and about with the dog. You start interacting with people, and you know people approach us and they're like, "Oh, what is this?" And you explain what it is, and you know I interacted someone with them all, and they're like, "Oh, I'm not a huge fan of cops, and I can't believe this is a program." And we just started talking, so it already builds those conversations. Hodge's brother Skipper has joined the Colchester Police Department and his other brother Jules has joined Southern Connecticut State University. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.